Um, good morning, everyone. Um, so over the course of this weekend, uh, we've been trying to learn to walk side by side with each other. Uh, and we've been asking questions like, how do we care well for one another in church? How do we minister to others? How well do we love each other as Christ loved the church? So this morning, we are going to watch Jesus. We're going to observe him modeling this side-by-side -side approach for us. I think it's one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. So Emily's going to read the passage for us, but as she reads it, could you try and choose one of these two options? Either imagine that you are one of these two disciples. How were you feeling when you started out on that journey? How did you feel whenever Jesus responded and spoke to you? Or else, pretend that you're a fly on the wall, or a fly hovering over those three people, watching Jesus, observing what he did, listening to what he said. Why did he respond the way that he did? So as we listen to the passage being read, either pretend to be one of the disciples, or else pretend to be the fly on the wall observing. And as we come to the passage that's going to appear on the screen, um, could I take up one of the challenges that Andrew gave us yesterday? He was sharing about how with social media, we can be so distracted that we don't see the person beside us. So I use my phone for my Bible. If that's what you are going to do, then that is fine. But if you think there's any chance that you're going to get distracted by the social media on your phone, I'm going to suggest that you leave it and you use the screen. Uh, just because I think today what we want to do is be walking along side by side with Jesus, and we want to give him our full attention. So it's going to appear on the screen, the words from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 32. And Emily's going to come and read that to us now. Luke 24, 13 through 32. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that he had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Thank you. So as we come to explore this passage, can we try and apply it to someone specific? Someone that you know, a friend. Can you take a moment to think about that friend? Or to think about somebody in church that you know that has a specific need? Perhaps a friend who needs some encouragement or support. Perhaps someone who needs a challenge or a comfort. Take a moment just to get somebody in your head that you want to journey with as we go through this passage. And and it will be helpful if you have that person in mind just as we walk through the passage. How would Jesus care for the person that you're thinking about? And in your mind's eye, can you see Jesus walking alongside them? Because for the next 20 minutes or so, we're just going to watch and observe Jesus as he walks alongside two people who are hurting badly. We're going to watch what he does. We're going to listen to what he says. And hopefully, we can learn from that. Now, if we want to find out who these two disciples were, we go back to verse 9. And in verse 9, it talks about the 11 and all the others. So there were 12 apostles, those closest to Jesus. Judas had betrayed Jesus, and there were 11 close disciples. But then there were other (coughs) disciples, non-core disciples. And that's who these two were, two of the non-core disciples. And later we learn that one of them was named Cleopas. Uh, Can you imagine what their frame of mind must have been like as the 11 and the others were gathered together? A week ago, they had seen Jesus come in in triumph. He had entered to acclaim, and everybody knew that he was the one. He was glorious, he was powerful, he was successful, he was the redeemer. And within the space of a week, this man who they had followed all around Galilee, all around uh, Judea, this man who had been so much acclaimed by the public suddenly had been taken from them, They had abandoned him in terror. He had been tortured. He had then been crucified. And if they'd been there watching the crucifixion, what a horrible thing to have had to witness. This person who they loved, this person who they had chosen to follow, this person who they had invested their trust in, and he had been taken from them in an awful way. Verse 11 tells us that they were so despondent that they were so down, that even when the women came to them to report the empty tomb, verse 11 says they did not believe them. So these two disciples, they set out on the road to Emmaus. 
And they're going with a sense of, of disbelief, of confusion, of bewilderment, of disappointment. And they're setting out on this journey of seven miles, talking through all the events of that weekend as they go along. And as they're on this journey, this is where Jesus first appears in the story in verse 15. And it tells us that he was just walking alongside them. Verse 16 is interesting because it talks about how at that point they were kept from recognizing him. They didn't realize that this was Jesus walking alongside them. And we'll come back to that later on. But as he walks along, Jesus asks them a couple of very simple, open-ended questions. What are you discussing? In verse 17. What things? In verse 19. And it's their response to these gentle questions that is so revealing. If you look at verse 17 and 18, the effect of the first question Jesus asks is, it stops them dead in their tracks. We read they stood still. And you can just see them having to relive the events that they'd gone through. And in their minds, such painful memories are being evoked that they become visibly upset. Their faces are downcast. So even in front of a stranger, they're not able to put a brave face on it. That, that hurt is just so deep and yet it is so fresh on the surface, it is so real, it is so personal, and, and they can't help but feel it, show it, and stop dead. And their response to the second question is equally revealing. Now, it's a long answer, it covers six verses, and it suggests Jesus was just giving them space to talk, space to express themselves, and Jesus is listening carefully to their answer. So we're going to read it again. And as we read it again, think about how you think it was said. Do you think it was said slowly and despondently? Do you think it was said with breathless amazement that not only had these events happened, but here was a stranger who didn't even know what had been going on? But don't just listen to how it was said. Listen to the words that are said and consider carefully and see if you can work out What's going on in these disciples' hearts? What do we know about their hearts from what it says? And what they say is about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one, the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. I think we learn so much from this response. <clears throat> Firstly, we can see their beliefs. And in verse 19, we read that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet powerful in word and deed. That was what they believed. That's what they had seen last week whenever he came in power, in triumphant en uh, entry into Jerusalem. But as well as their beliefs, I think we can see their hopes in verse 21. 
where it says, we had hoped that he was the one. Past tense, our hope is gone. Thirdly, I think we can see their confusion in verse 22, where it talks about these women having amazed them. Reports of empty tombs, reports of visions of angels. And finally, I think throughout the answer, overwhelmingly you see their sadness. Handed over, crucified, didn't find his body, did not see Jesus. So listening carefully has revealed so much about these disciples. And we can understand why they're so sad. Because they're thinking, we saw Jesus killed and people don't rise from the dead. We invested hope in Jesus and that's now been dashed. We believed that he was the one and we've been left disappointed, empty, without hope, without purpose. Now as we look back today from 2,000 years later, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of the whole New Testament, we can see the flaw in their logic. Jesus came to the earth for the very purpose of dying and rising again. And that's exactly what Jesus sets out to explain to them, how he had to die and then rise again. Jesus uses scripture to open their eyes to truth, to correct their wrong beliefs, to rekindle their hope. Jesus had listened carefully to their answer. And from their hopes and their beliefs and their confusions, Jesus identifies two key stumbling blocks, two things that we're going to focus on. And firstly, is their understanding of suffering. And secondly, is their understanding of glory. And firstly, I think in this disciples' response, we can see the glorious hopes they had from a week ago. They knew that he was going to be this glorious redeemer. They knew that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They knew that he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. They were investing in this triumphant Jesus, this glorious, this powerful redeemer. But secondly, we can see the cold reality of death that had set in. And just their confusion about, about this concept of a suffering servant. How Jesus had been subjected to such suffering. How he had been handed over. How he had been sentenced to death. How he had been crucified. And to them, a suffering, dead Jesus was just a failure. So Jesus picks out these two stumbling blocks, their wrong beliefs about what suffering involved and about glory. And in one phrase, he just says, did not the Messiah have to suffer and then enter his glory? And using the whole of scripture, Jesus was able to explain the nature of suffering and the nature of glory. He was able to show them that Jesus is not was, Jesus is the powerful redeemer that they'd hoped for. But only first by being that suffering servant. And that understanding was so crucial for these disciples. To them, they'd given up hope in the glorious redeemer because he'd suffered and died. Jesus says, no, because I suffered and died, I can become that glorious redeemer. Jesus was teaching them, that he had to suffer these things and then enter his glory.
But Jesus wasn't only teaching them. Jesus had shared his life with them. Jesus had walked a long road with them. And now Jesus stays. And he shares a meal with them. And he walks uh, and he has fellowship with them. And they pray together. And Jesus enters into the basic rhythm of life with these people, these two disciples. Surely a newly risen Lord has a million better things to be doing. Surely he has a dozen other more important people that he could be spending his time with. This is day one after the grave, and yet he's investing hours of his time in these two non-core disciples. Jesus chose to spend an enormous amount of precious, finite time with these two hurting followers. He made them a priority. It gives me tingles down. I've got them now. It gives me tingles down my spine every time I read these next verses because we read that then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Here is divine intervention. Their eyes are opened. They recognize him. They understand. They get it. They believe. Their hope is restored. And thinking back, they realize how their hearts were burning while Jesus talked and opened up the scriptures to them. It must have been so exciting to have been there. Now it all made sense to them. Back in verse 16, do you remember? God had closed their eyes. He had stopped them from recognizing Jesus. And now in verse 31, God opens their eyes, but he opens their eyes to an even more wonderful, a more deep, a deeper understanding of the Savior that they had hoped for. God opened their eyes to this prophecy fulfilling, this promise keeping, this suffering then glorified risen Lord. And what a spine tinglingly exciting moment that must have been for the two of them. What can we learn from this encounter with Jesus? Can you think back to the person that you had in your mind, your friend at the start of the service? Perhaps someone who is despondent, whose hopes are dashed, or someone that is bewildered and confused, or someone that's in pain and in need of encouragement. How does what we have seen of Jesus' approach in this encounter guide us in caring for our friend? Well, there are four things I think we can take out of this passage. And the first is very simple. We walk alongside. Jesus chose to invest himself in these disciples. He spent time walking and talking with them, sharing a meal, praying with them. He made them a priority. Do I see my friend's need as a priority for me? Am I willing to invest time in them? And we may not say anything for a very long time. In fact, there may be very little to say in the face of suffering. We may just share in the basic activities of daily life. But just being there, uh, just walking with them, journeying with that person, showing them that they're cared for, that is so important. 
no one can overstate the value of it. So if walking alongside someone is all that we do, then that by itself is of immense worth. Secondly, know the person. You see Jesus asking questions, giving time for the person to stand still and think before answering. And Jesus doesn't jump in, but he listens carefully. He notes the facial expression. He sees the hurt. He understands the heart issues, including their hopes, their disappointments, their flawed beliefs. And only then does he speak. Jesus wants to know their heart before he says anything. Do I really want to know what's going on in my friend's heart? What are their hopes and their beliefs? Have they been hurt in the past? Do they have misunderstandings about Jesus? Sometimes a perceptive question and showing that we're actually interested in the answer, that will actually help the person to process for themselves the issues. And then we will have been like Christ for them. We will have helped them to work out a godly response by offering a good question and a listening ear. <coughs> Thirdly, use scripture. Jesus used all of scripture. How well do I know my Bible? Not just that one proof text that I use for everyone in every circumstance without thought. Not just that same holy sounding phrase that then sounds so glib whenever it's offered without consideration or understanding. Jesus was able to draw on all of scripture and then to be specific about the verse he chose for the specific disciples and the specific situation. He knew that a suffering glorified savior was what he needed to teach. And that is where he focused on with these disciples. Do I know which part of scripture is most helpful to the person in my mind right now. And Jesus chose to challenge and to stretch these disciples as well as to comfort them. So what does God want me to bring to my friend now? Is it a message of stretching? Is it a message of, of comfort? Is it one of challenge or is it one of encouragement? Often the stumbling block for us and for our friend can be exactly the same as it was for these disciples. Because so often we want the glory without the suffering. We want the good bits of the Christian life without having to endure the hard bits. And we also need this biblical understanding of suffering and of glory. Jesus showed these disciples how for him the path needed to be suffering before glory. And it is the same in our lives. Our path and experience on earth will be suffering before glory. And those of our friends will be suffering before glory. Paul writes, we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We suffer in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Is that a message that I'm willing to accept for myself? or for my friend? And if so, how could I say that with gentleness and with love? Finally, expect divine intervention. It is God who opened the eyes of these disciples. It is God who will open the eyes of your friend. 
of the friend you have in mind so that he can see or she can see this Jesus in his true glory. We're not Jesus, but we can bring our friend into the presence of Jesus. We can allow the Holy Spirit to work through us to minister to that person. We can bring the Holy Spirit to open. We can pray for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes, to bring them understanding, comfort, assurance, challenge, guidance, peace. It's also important to remember that it was God who closed the eyes in the first place of Cleopas and his friend. God chose to close their eyes and to prevent them from recognizing Jesus. Jesus was walking alongside them. And even though they didn't know it, he was there. And the same thing is true of the friend that you have in your mind. Jesus is walking right alongside them. And even though they may not know it, he is right there with them in the journey, right beside them. God is in every part of this journey and God will use it for his purpose. God will use it for his glory and God will do it in his time. And when that happens, when that time comes, when our eyes are opened, when our friend's eyes are opened, we'll be able to look back at the journey with our friend and to realize that Jesus was there and our hearts will be burning too. Amen. Gordon.